Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, this is a three-part segment show, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, We're going to kick off this episode of the American Shoreline Podcast with the host of the newest show on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Steve Mercer, who is the president of Coastal Transplants, and his unbelievably smart and talented daughter, Dory Mercer, known to her friends as Annie, uh, who is the program coordinator for Coastal Transplants and also the 2020 ASBPA Fellow. They're kicking off a new show, Tyler, called The Carolina Coast. It's going to be cool. Can't wait. Absolutely can't wait. I'm excited to learn more about the Carolina Coast, but I'm also excited for that father-daughter dynamic there with Steve and Annie. Uh, Dory. No, I am. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of fun. Which is why we're one of the key reasons why we're doing that uh, co-hosted show. I think it will be fun for all of us. Uh, but stick around later in the show, ladies and gentlemen. We've got two additional great segments. Paul Amaral, captain uh, of Tow Boat U.S. Ventura, uh, will be with us, telling us about marine mammal rescues that he has done, how that works, what it's like to be there next to a giant marine mammal that you're rescuing. Absolutely amazing segment. And also, we look forward to Karen Mullen and AJ Metcalf, both of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. They've had to modify their entire education program uh, as a result of COVID-19. So we're going to talk to them about how they've adapted Uh, to be basically entirely virtual with helping homeschool teachers, uh, people who are educating their kids at home, giving uh, teachers supplies and uh, I shouldn't say supplies, I should say educational tools, virtual tools, videos and the like uh, for people to learn from home. So we look forward to all that. But before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Steve and and Dory, it is such a great privilege for us on the American Shoreline Podcast Network to introduce you guys to our listening audience and your new podcast called the Carolina Coast. Um, ladies first, as always. Uh, Dory, talk to us a little bit about 
your show that you're doing with your father and, and introduce us a little bit to Coastal Transplants as well. Sure. Um, Coastal Transplants is a environmental restoration company. And because I grew up and dad grew up in North Carolina, that's where we're based. And we just really like giving back to that community. And we've met so many interesting people through working with them through Coastal Transplants on putting vegetation and sand fence on the North Carolina coast that we wanted to kind of introduce everyone else to these great people and these great ideas that are happening in North Carolina. Cool. Well, Steve, when did you start Coastal Transplants? And tell us a little bit about the history of the work you've done there on the Carolina coastline. Well, we started probably uh, 20, 25 years ago. And uh, uh, the greenhouse uh, side of the business started when uh, we, uh, my wife and I came back um, and started growing flowers. And we chose the mid-90s to do that. Uh, and if anybody uh, uh, remembers what the mid-90s were like in, the, in North Carolina, uh, it was one hurricane after another and you know you build a plastic house on uh, on the beach and it doesn't last long so we were struggling uh, to to ever you know to expand the business and grow the business and and and, and just uh, uh, stay viable uh, when uh, local county extension David uh, agent David Nash came in and said, have you ever thought about growing these plants uh, that grow on the beach? I think uh, with all these storms, there's going to be a demand. And we gave it a try and fell in love with it. And uh, now it's the day job. So uh, that's sort of the history of the company. It just sort of evolved from uh, from the natural disasters that we were having and and uh, the need to, to just uh, meet uh, and help. Uh, the local demand. So uh, uh, we uh, came into it sort of through the back door. We blew into it, so to speak. But uh, uh, that's that's sort of how we got started in this. And and it was uh, uh, a love of the beach that I had anyway. And then uh, this sort of uh, just let that grow. And and over the years. The people we've met and people we've worked with are the things that, you know, that's that's what keeps us going is just the great people we get to work with. Well, it is a fantastic company, Steve, and we we appreciate that you are also uh, Coastal Transplants as a sponsor on Coastal News Today and ASPN, and we really appreciate that. Uh, folks don't realize out there that when you're trying to restore and maintain dune systems, you need tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of native dune plants. Um, Coastal Transplants is one of the leading companies out there that grows these things in your greenhouse network and brings them all over the country to get installed. I mean, Steve and I have done projects in South Padre Island, Texas, where he brings plants from North Carolina in a truck all the way down to the deepest part of South Texas <laughs> and install those. And Steve, as I remember, you collected the seeds from South Padre, bring them to North Carolina, get them grown up a little bit and bring them back and install the plants. It's just really a great company and a great effort. Yeah. We, uh, I, early on, I determined uh, that that was going to be the, the primary focus of, of, of the company was to 
uh, keep native material native. Uh, we didn't want to uh, introduce uh, sea oats from North Carolina into Texas or sea oats from Texas into North Carolina. So we we just very early on, we, we took that position in the company. And quite frankly, I think it's the right position to take. Uh, but it, it's it's done us well. It, it, it helps us in the, in the marketplace, uh, being able to go to people and, and explain how we, how we do it and, and why we do it that way. And, uh, um, can I ask a question real quick here on the sea oats? Uh, if you're looking at a Texas sea oat versus a North Carolina sea oat side by side, kind of a, a lineup style, can you pick them apart? Oh yeah, definitely. Describe for me there what you're what you're seeing that's different. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, you can you can see it in even in the greenhouse. Uh, it's a, a, a different shape, different stem structure, uh, different color. Uh, the, the 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 stem the stems on the sea oats are almost a, a, almost purple compared to a dark green for North Carolina sea oats. Uh, they're they're uh, a broader base plant, um, and uh, just squattier, uh, 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 chunkier. I guess is the best way to say. It's sort of like the difference between a a wide receiver in football and <laughs> a middle linebacker. Yeah, uh, you know, just a yeah, different build. Yeah, totally different build, and uh, and you can see it in the you can see it in the field too. When when we plant them out, uh, you'll see. Um, so East Coast uh, sea oats will 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 be will average six to eight inches taller in the field. Say at the three to five year mark, uh, they'll be six to eight inches taller as a mature plant than uh, than a Texas sea oat will be. So it, it it's it's definitely different and we've trialed them in in both places and um and you can you know you can you can say what you want to say uh whether they're you know they're all in the same family i call them you know uh uh, uh cousins uh, uh a, a north carolina plant just does not do well in texas can't take the heat uh, and can't take the long season, whereas a Texas plant does not uh, perform well in North Carolina either, just because of our cool winters right. and uh, uh, and short, you know, more days of short daylight. So, right. um, so it's it's you know, I, I know, I know, just in looking at what I've done that. Uh, uh, somewhere, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I made a decision on how I was going to base the company. And I look at it now and go, I don't know how I did that, but that was a good decision. <laughs> you know, the pig finding the acorn there, you know. Well, Steve, is are these things the, the same genus and species? Is it unilata? Is it panaculata? Is that how you say it? <laughs> paniculata. <laughs> Uni- paniculata. Uh, uh, listen. Uniola paniculata, I, I, the yeah, sea oak. I speak, I speak two languages, uh, a little bit of English and a whole lot of Southern. So <laughs> my, my my Latin names, I try to avoid those at all costs. So, But I call it uniola paniculata. 
And okay. I hope that's even close. And and if any of the listeners uh, 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 would like to correct me, tell them to feel free to do that. You know, uh, now they do it but, all the time. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but it's but, the same. Are they the same species, or is there a subspecies difference here, or is that recognized? No, no the they're the same. Today? And there's been some research actually by a lady here in North Carolina, out of uh, Western Carolina University, if I'm not mistaken, and she confirmed my you know, uh, country boy kicking the sand theory that, that they are, that they, they're, they're all the same. They're all the same. They're just, they're just cousins. That's all they are. And they're, and they're close cousins. Uh, so they're like first and second cousins, you know, they're not three times removed and, and kissing cousins. They're, they're first and second cousins. So, uh, so, uh, they're really, it's a really, uh, tight, species but they perform uh, they perform differently in different areas and in different uh ecosystems so yeah no it matters that's why those native seeds that you pick up in south texas and it's one of the things i like about uh about what you're doing uh and and it's also why i really am looking forward to your show with annie and I, I don't hope I hope you don't mind. Steve. I've known her as Annie, so I'm going to call her Annie. Know. Even though it's, it's, they're going to, you, you might as well Dory. say we're hosting it with three people because I'm going to call her Dory, and everybody else is going to call her Annie. And so, so for for first time viewers, they're going to sit there and go, "Who is that third person that he keeps referring to?" But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. I, I enjoy. I enjoy working with uh, Dory, uh, and so this just gives us another opportunity to to uh, work together and uh, and do some fun stuff. Uh, the people Good. that we're going to introduce you to over the next year are just fun, energetic people that are making Can't a wait. big difference on our coast. So we're going to be excited about bringing that to you. That's absolutely awesome, uh, and I know that. Peter, we talk about it all the time. One of the things that we love to do here at ASPN is bring out the characters, the people, yeah. the the cool and interesting folks out there who live and work on the American shoreline. And uh, Steve, you and Dory, I think, uh, are some of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys but I know. <laughs> I know that uh, birds of a feather flock together and... Uh, but you, the, the the depth of knowledge there on the Carolina coast and just the Carolina coast in general is something that I personally am really excited to learn more about. Dory, I want to learn about your nickname, Dory. Where did that come from? Um, I'm named after my great-grandparents, um, my dad's grandparents, Annie May and Dorman Lowell. And so I am Annie Dorman um, and I have never been called Annie Dorman at home. I was always Dory. Um, and so it's it's kind of like a math equation. <laughs> uh, I'm D-O-R-R-I-E, Dory. So you've got the double R's like the double N's, and then it ends in an I-E like Annie does. Man, love that. Yeah. Family name. Yeah. Well, it's a combo That's family so name. <clears throat> Here's it's more. It's kind of like a Florida sea oat, somewhere between Texas and North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask Annie or Dory. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with Annie <clears throat> because I, I don't have Dory in my mind yet. But, 
But uh, you got to talk to me a little bit about what you expect to go uh, on in the show with your father. Uh, are you looking forward to working with your dad? Uh, I hope that y'all's personality comes through this show because you're both wonderful and delightful people. But uh, what's it like looking down the barrel of doing a show with your father? What do you hope to do? Well, hopefully we won't have as many technical difficulties as we had this morning. Um, <laughs> but I do expect a lot of long-winded talking from him. So people will have a lot of a lot of the same experiences I did growing up where you just have to kind of wait for him to stop before you get your two cents in. He's smart. That's why. He's got a lot of wisdom. He does. He does. And he has a great ability to get people talking too. So it's not, it's, I know it's not just him when I'm sitting in the car after an eight hour day being like, please just get the woman's check so we can leave. Please just get the woman's check. So they, I mean, people want to talk to my dad too. And so I think that um, based off of the people that we've outlined and the things that we want to talk to them about, I think that there's, there's going to be a lot of fun stuff, not just about the coast, but about people and their experience living by the ocean and not just working on it. Yeah, for sure. Well, and y'all just y'all just found the uh, the dynamic in the duo. I'm uh, I'm the mouth and she's the brain. So uh, <laughs> hopefully there'll be more of her involved in this than me. <laughs> Sounds like a good combination, you know. And I, your daughter, I mean. Annie was the person who pulled together the local government funding report for the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. She's a, a fellow there, well-educated in coastal issues professionally. And, and you guys have your literally have your hands in the dirt on coastal restoration. I think it's just a fantastic combination. Well, we hope so. I think, uh, I, I think we're going to be, uh, I don't know, the way I envision it, we're not going to be the stars of the show. We're just going to be the cheerleaders or the uh, color commentary, so to speak. But once you meet some of these uh, folks that we've that, that 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 we're starting to talk to and and we'll bring forward, I, I think um, everyone that that tunes in will be uh, will learn something and be excited for waiting for the next show to see who we're going to bring out next. So. You know, we're excited about that. We're excited about putting it together and 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 like I said, just highlighting our hometown, so to speak. Can't wait for it, guys. Uh, the show is called The Carolina Coast, co-hosted by Steve Mercer and his daughter. And I would say show lead. Uh the, the principal host, the, the one that's going to be in the cornerstone, the foundational <laughs> one, uh, his daughter, daughter, Annie Mercer. But we will know her by Dory on the show. Guys, thank you so much for joining ASPN. Really looking forward to that show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You guys talk to you later. And I want to welcome to the show, Captain Paul Amaral. Paul is the owner and the captain of a company in Ventura, California. He's a Coast Guard licensed captain. He responds to a lot of emergency situations off the coast of Southern California. And I'll tell you, Tyler, the one we're interested in, and I'm looking forward to talking to Paul about, is a right is a, is a an entanglement of a humpback whale that occurred earlier this month. Absolutely. So am I, Peter and Paul. Welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. Let's just start right off. Give us a little history of 
how you became a vessel assist captain and someone out there rescuing entangled whales. Well, thank you both for having me on the show. It's uh, I've always done boating as a, as recreation, and I've always enjoyed it, fishing, diving, anything to do with the ocean, I did. Um, 17 years ago, my wife and I decided that we wanted to do something different than the automotive industry job that I had. And uh, we came across this uh, business, bought it, and uh, the rest is history. 17 years later, still going strong. Wow. So did you have a history? So it's an interesting business. Your your business is uh, tow. What, what was the history of the business? I know that today you operate under uh, Towboat US Ventura, which I understand is kind of like the AAA of the maritime world. But tell us a little bit about uh, this business that you bought into and what services you provide. Yes. Yeah, so uh, in the mid 80s, um, Congress mandated that the Coast Guard should not be providing non-emergency services. At that time, they were doing jump starts and delivering fuel and towing in boats. Uh, They were just broken down, not an emergency. As a result of that, the marine assistance uh, towing industry came about and opened up opportunity for the private sector to go out and and assist boaters. Uh, Around the same time, um, a gentleman here in Southern California, David LaMontagne, as a college project, started up Vessel Assist, which emulated kind of the the AAA roadside assistance type uh, service. Um, Boat US also did the same thing, uh, and they were very strong on the East Coast. Vessel Assist was strong on the, the West Coast. In 2004, Boat US bought out Vessel Assist, and then it became uh, nationwide, the, the towboat U.S. service. And yeah, we basically provide, the towboat U.S. part provides non-emergency towing, jump starts, uh, prop disentanglements um, for members that, that buy the membership and the services provided for, for free. Aside yeah. from, from that, um, my business is a private company. Channel Watch Marine is the, the actual name of my corporation. But we also engage in salvage. We raise boats that, that sink. Uh, we get them off the beach or off the rocks. Um, our area is somewhat unique, and there are not a lot of uh, resources as far as uh, rescue resources. So we frequently work with the Coast Guard, the local harbor patrols, uh, National Park Service, uh, the NOAA National Marine Sanctuary. And we do get involved in quite a few rescues as well. It's really good to have you on, Paul. And and I, I would imagine uh, Boat US for for our listeners out there, Boat US is a is a national organization of recreational boater interests. And uh, longtime listeners may remember we had on David Kennedy, who's the government affairs manager for Boat US. Uh, that was during the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway uh, podcast series. So if you're interested in details about Boat US, go back and listen to that show. Uh, Paul, when you started this back in, uh, would you say 2003, was that when you got involved and got the company? Correct. Yeah. The, there was already a vessel assist operation here at that time, but that's when I took it over was in 2003. Okay. Now, when you bought this thing, did you think you were ever going to be out 
trying to disentangle large whales off the California coast? What kind of a surprise has it been to get involved in that effort? That, that has been one of the many surprises. Uh, I have done so many things <laughs> that never in my wildest dream would I thought I would be doing. And that's, um, it's, it's been rather interesting over the years. Well, we're excited to learn about some of them, Paul. Uh, and uh, listeners know, of course, that you are located in kind of my favorite neck of, of the woods when it comes to the American shoreline. So I'm, I'm particularly interested. But one of the aspects of your area that I find fascinating is that you, you're right there on the mainland side of the Channel Islands uh, archipelago. And you've got, obviously, it's a national park. There's a national marine sanctuary. So you've got strong uh, federal control and jurisdiction out there. And uh, Peter, you'll recall our trip out to the Channel Islands where we saw that megapod of dolphins. And we actually saw some whales on that trip. So I know that this... Spectacular. I know that this area that uh, that you work in is pretty pretty active with wildlife and with recreational boating. Um, tell us a little bit about profile the the types of of cases that you see. I mean, what what are you seeing out there uh, on a day to day basis? What, what take us through a day in the life? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. So it's uh, there's never any two days alike. Uh, and also the thing that you left out as far as our area is it's also a commercial shipping lane. The Santa Barbara Channel uh, is a commercial shipping lane for thousands of ships right. per year that travel through here. So we have uh, weather that can go from beautiful and benign in the morning to small craft and gale warnings in the afternoon. Uh, the offshore islands uh, range from approximately 10, 10 to 12 miles offshore to over 75 miles. And they're frequented by recreational boaters, uh, fishing, diving. Um, so we have a wide range of area that we cover. And um, we do anything from a boat simply runs out of fuel coming home. We'll go out and we'll uh, deliver some fuel to how, them. How often does um, that happen, Paul? I'm just curious. I'm just curious. From your Is that a common mistake that is made? You go out, you, you just run out of gas? Is that common? It is somewhat common, yes. it's uh, People don't realize how much fuel uh, a boat uses. They're, they kind of still have in their mind their miles per gallon on their car, and when they head offshore to an island that's you know 30 miles offshore, oftentimes they uh, underestimate how much fuel they're going to need. So on the way home, they'll run out of fuel. F- fairly common. Um, dead batteries. They go out, anchor up. Uh, their bait wells are running. Uh, their stereos are running and their, their batteries will go dead. So we'll go out and jump them. Lots of mechanical failures, um, anything from outdrives to outboards to inboard engines, uh, lots of mechanical failures. And then the thing that we have, uh, not frequently, but several times a month on average is mishaps, uh, a boat that will run aground or start taking on water. Uh, fires. We've responded to, to several fires, uh, and that is that's the rescue side of things. We will assist the Coast Guard and the other agencies in first saving lives, and then once the the lives are saved and the situation's under control, then saving property comes into play, and and we go out and 
do the best we can to salvage the vessel, minimize uh, pollution to the pristine environment out there, as you mentioned, National Marine Sanctuary, a national park. So very, very important to try to minimize the, the negative environmental impact of things like that. A really interesting profession, Paul, being out helping Mary on the water. You never know what kind of call is going to come in. And I understand April 13th this year, there was a very interesting call that you received about a tangled humpback whale on the backside of Santa Cruz Island. Can you tell us about that day when you guys received that call and the effort that went into untangling this whale? Uh, give us the story that you that happened earlier this month. Yeah, so just as a little bit of a, of a background, we work with uh, a NOAA disentanglement team, uh, a California stranding network that's administered by NOAA National Marine Fisheries. We train regularly with them um, to be able to respond to these type of incidents. So um, people know around here that we do that. The Coast Guard knows that, that we do that. So on that day, the Coast Guard received a call from a, um, a Good Samaritan, a commercial fisherman that was happened to be going by that area that saw what looked like something unusual. When he got closer, he realized that it was a, a humpback whale entangled in some fishing gear. Um, the Coast Guard, knowing our involvement, gave us a call, uh, let us know what was going on. We then contacted um, the California Stranding Network coordinator, got a hold of him, immediately sent out a boat to that area to, to survey the situation, to figure out uh, what the entanglement was, uh, what could be done, and to formulate a plan for uh, an eventual response and, and try to free the animal. You know, one of the things you mentioned there is this sophistication of the coordination. And I think I want our listeners to understand that responding to, uh, which happened around 50 times a year on the California coast, uh, f based on the NOAA uh, National Marine Fisheries Service data we looked at, um, requires a permit and professional training. This isn't something you want your mom and pop folks out there going, gee whiz, I'm going to jump in the water with a knife and see what I can do. Uh, this is a really regulated exercise, isn't it? Extremely regulated. And uh, so one, you can't approach a whale within so many feet. If you do, you're breaking the law. The, the goal of the program is not just to save that one animal, but it's to document uh, the entanglement. It's to try and figure out what kind of gear it's entangled in, how it got entangled, and what steps we can take to minimize the, the occurrences in the future. So extremely important to go out. Um, we take uh, GoPro cameras and, and video underwater as much as we can, um, not only to try and determine the best way of freeing the animal, but to also try and determine what the cause was, uh, the kind of fishing gear, what possibly caused it to get entangled. Um, and not to mention human safety. I mean, we all see the pictures of somebody jumping in the water and cutting a a whale free and the whale, you know, jumping out of the water saying thank you and going on its way. But that's not the reality. The, the reality is these animals are, are scared, they're tired, they don't know that we're there trying to help them. And once you start approaching them or cutting a line, if you touch them, if you hurt them, just their natural reactions could be deadly to you. So extremely important to, if, if you do run across an animal like that, to, to notify 
Um, they can call us if they're comfortable. They can call the Coast Guard, and somebody will make sure that the right people are notified and, and everything is done to free the animal. But very, very important not to to try to undertake the rescue yourself. So, Paul, take me into your your mind here. You uh, you get a call from the, the Coast Guard who's been tipped off by a good Samaritan. You have a general description of the scenario. What What information was conveyed at that time? And what goes through your mind in the decision to uh, go out there and try to help out? How are you sizing up the strategy of getting this whale disentangled? We get as much information as possible from the Good Samaritan because there are times that we are unable to relocate the animal. So we get as much information as we possibly can. Uh, If they can tell us, you know, the type of gear, the size of the animal um uh, humpback or gray whale and once we have that information we also ask them to try and stand by the the animal until someone can can get out there in this case the fisherman was uh, on his way to to fishing it's his livelihood it's about a 25 mile distance from ventura here so we were hearing the conversation between him and the coast guard he couldn't wait we didn't know if the animal was trapped to the bottom or if he was uh, just dragging the gear. So as soon as possible, we got our, our boat ready. Uh, we have a boat that does you know, about 30, 40 knots uh, speed-wise. The weather was a little choppy, so we couldn't go full speed, but we got out there within about an hour and a half. The, the goal is to, one, relocate the animal, um, try to determine what's going on, and then trying to mount the actual rescue attempt. So we went out there, we found the, the whale. Sure enough, it was entangled in, um, in what they call the downline for uh, spotted prawn gear. It's the, the floating buoy that marks their string of, uh, of traps. And in this case, it wasn't going anywhere. There was probably over a thousand pounds of weight on the bottom. So it was, it was stuck where, where it was. Um, we have some GoPro cameras that we put on the end of a pole. Uh, we cautiously observe the animal, see what it's doing, get as close as we can safely, uh, document the entanglement, take lots of pictures, lots of videos, and then coordinate with um, a gentleman named Justin Fizbiki, who is the coordinator for the California Stranding Network. Uh, relay all the information to him. He then reaches out to various volunteers, see who's available, what equipment is available uh, from the, the network. And then uh, in this case, we were able to mount a response fairly quickly. Uh, and the following morning, uh, we were out there by, by nine o'clock actually starting to work. With the, the COVID-19 uh, issues going on, the, the response wasn't exactly as uh, it would have been. We had to not use as many people. Um, we typically use real small boats to approach the animal and work from, but in this case, the number of people that it would have taken to to do that just uh, wasn't workable. So we used uh, uh, two of my vessels to actually work from and to uh, conduct the, the rescue. I think one of the things I want our listeners to is the National Marine Stranding Net referred to it. And these networks of volunteers and 
professional scientists and folks like yourself uh, operate on shorelines all around America and in marine mammals, either beaching of dolphins or whaling anglements, seals, every guys are active and involved. It's a great, can you tell us a little bit about that network? Yeah, so it's, uh, as you said, it's, it's a volunteer network. Here in our area, up and down the California coast, uh, we meet regularly. Uh, we have uh, monthly phone calls that, uh, that we all get in on. Uh, it is made up of um, a lot of the volunteer wildlife um, places, like in this case, uh, it was the Channel Islands Marine and Wildlife Institute that provided two people to actually assist with the, with the cutting. Uh, there's professors from the local universities, marine biologists, um, the captain of uh, the Condor Express Well Watching uh, Charter Boat was uh, one of the volunteers. Uh, people that are on the water a lot, a lot of the, the charter companies uh, will provide some volunteers uh, like us. We're, this is our backyard. Uh, we're out there all the time working and we're out there having fun as well uh, on our time off. So because we're out there a lot um, and anything that we can do to help, we try. I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford to be able to volunteer my, my vessels and my people. And uh, we have done, this is our, our third one, our third one we've been involved with and uh, in a lot of training. That's awesome, Paul. Uh, let me ask you, uh, this particular whale um, I, I think I saw, you know, again, great follow on social media. You can follow, is it, it's Boat U.S. Ventura, I believe. Is that right, Paul? Towboat U.S. Ventura. Towboat tow U.S. Ventura. Good follow on uh, on Facebook and Instagram. But uh, you posted some of the pictures up there. And actually, Noah uh, ended up using some of these same uh, photographs. But uh, it looked as though this gear had really... Uh, that line weighed down by all that gear really tore into uh, the the base of the tail there. Um, what 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 was your reaction when you saw the damage? I know you're you're captaining at this point, you're in command, but man, that that looked pretty nasty. It, it, it's heartbreaking. Um, we got out there. I don't know, about 2.30 in the afternoon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and just seeing this magnificent animal just struggling. Um, and once we uh, videoed it and once we saw the, the video, uh, we could see the damage to, to the tail. And knowing that there was nothing we could do that afternoon or that night, that it was going to have to spend the night out there and, and it would be the next day before we could mount a rescue, just it's heartbreaking it's really heartbreaking to to see that and that's where the the reward of doing this the time that we put in the money that i put in uh it all makes it worthwhile when you can can see an animal like that swim away in this case there there was a bit of a injury to the tail but we're hopeful that uh it will heal and, and recover they, they're pretty resilient in the sense of uh recovering from injuries like that so our, our hope is that it will survive Paul, can you take us through the rescue? So you get out there Tuesday morning, you have your team, you've got two of your boats and uh, volunteers from the network, the Marine Mammal Stranding Network are on the scene. Uh, when did you arrive? How long did it take? Are you guys in the water? Uh, how did it go? 
Yeah, so no, we met uh, in Ventura at uh, about 7 o'clock in the morning, loaded gear onto uh, one of my boats that we're going to use as a base boat, um, and then uh, went out. It's about an hour and a half uh, trip out. Uh, so by the time we loaded the gear, coordinated with the boats, it was about 9 o'clock when we were on scene starting. We never get in the water. It's uh, not safe, uh, and it's just one of the rules is we, we never get in the water with the animals at all. Over the years of, uh, of doing this and uh, experience, uh, the network has developed quite a few cutting tools that we use. Um, we'll attach various different cutting knives and grapnel hooks, things of that sort, to the end of poles. And the goal, typically using a small, you know, like 10-foot, 12-foot inflatable boat, is what they will use to go up to the animal and actually do the, the cutting from. Again, in this case, because of the coronavirus issues, uh, we didn't do that. So we used uh, my smaller boat to uh, go up and actually work from. So using cameras on the end of poles, using cutting gear on the end of poles, we try to assess where to make the cuts in order to be the most effective to, to free the animal. Um, in this case, the animal was, was stuck to the bottom. It couldn't swim away. But a lot of times when we're doing this, the animal's free swimming. And you actually have to attach a line to the gear, hold on to it as it's swimming, let it tire out. And then as it gets tired, then you're able to, to try and do some of the cutting and working on it. In this case, it probably had been out there for, for a couple of days. The animal was already tired uh, at the surface. It couldn't go anywhere. So fortunately for us, it was pretty docile. And um, we were able to come up to it. Uh, make some cuts, uh, and eventually, so the first cuts we make are to unwrap the rope around the tail to try and get that off as much as possible. But as you can see from the picture, everything was really tight. So that in itself is, is difficult. And then once we had uh, cut that as much as possible, we then cut it free from the actual rope that was uh, holding it to the bottom to, to the fishing gear. Wow. I want to. I just want to, if you wouldn't mind, filling in a little bit about the gear. You said it's prawn gear, and so when I, when I hear that, I know that's a commercial fishery term. I'm thinking uh, lobster. Um, you said about some multiple traps on a string that the whale was entangled in the vertical line from the bottom up to the surface with a buoy on it. Uh, can you tell us? Were you able to get any video about? the gear or can you describe you know it's not a single trap right it's a string can you tell us about it yeah you're absolutely right that's what it is it's uh i think in this case they mentioned that they had 10 traps on this string so they will start at one location with a, a down line and a buoy drop the first trap and then on the same on the same string there are multiple multiple traps so as they travel they release the traps, they all go to the bottom, and then when they get to the end of the, the traps, they have another buoy and another line that comes up to the surface. Um, those lines uh, coming up to the surface uh, are weighted, and there's various things that they do to, to minimize and prevent entanglements, but that seems to be, in the case of this gear, where the entanglements uh, occur. Um, in this case, I think we were in about uh, a thousand feet of water, so pretty deep water, and the entanglement occurred wow. up at the surface uh, on this uh, downline. 
Well, thank God it did happen near the surface because it seems like this whale was able to continue to, uh, obviously needed to continue to surface to breathe uh, and, Correct. and yep. was able to do that. Um, just an amazing, uh, an amazing story, Paul. Thanks for, thanks for walking us through that. Peter, do you have anything else you want to ask Paul about that whale rescue? Yeah, Paul, when you're, you're cruising, this is the third whale entanglement you've done. Uh, tell us about a little bit about the community uh, along the Ventura Coast uh, area uh, when it comes to these whale entanglements. Uh, whale entanglement issues nationally, uh, we're, we're familiar and have done podcasts related to the northern right whale entanglement issues in the lobster fishery on the northeast coast of the United States. Uh, the National Marine Fishery Service uh, is very involved in these fishery regulations to try to prevent these entanglements. Uh, as you said, you're in a really busy area. This is a migratory route for whales uh, that come through the area you are in, both blue whales, uh, California gray whales, and the humpback. Uh, what's the community sensitivity to the whale issue? How is the local fishing community understood issue fill us in a little bit about how that issue is is discussed in your community in in southern california well we're we're a coastal community and as you mentioned with the the islands that we have offshore here uh, oftentimes referred to as the galapagos of the west coast it's uh they're very pristine unique islands and to be within you know 50 60 miles of a, a metropolitan area like you know los angeles and then you go out to these islands and they're remote, uninhabited, and just pristine. So a lot of community involvement in the protection of the environment, protection of the wildlife. Uh, whales are, we see them frequently from shore and whale watching boats and, and the recreational boats that are out in the channel. And a lot, a lot of, of involvement in, um, in protection. One of the other problems that we have is not entanglements as well, but uh, ship strikes. And in this area, because of the shipping lanes going through the channel, uh, NOAA has uh, implemented a speed reduction program where they've asked ships to slow down while transiting through the channel. And there's uh, even some financial incentives for them to, to do that. And we've seen a significant decrease of, of ships, ship strikes as well. So it's uh, a lot of work is. is being put into it, and we are seeing some success. When you... Uh, and uh, this is just a quick thing, but when you guys get this whale disentangled, you've cut it off, everybody's on the boat. Tell us about, I mean, I'm, I would assume there's a lot of high fives and do you get back to the dock and go to breakfast? I mean, tell us about that. <laughs> I mean, what it's does too it feel early like for to a beer, you know? You <laughs> yeah, it's a little early well, for a beer. <laughs> we would have loved to have gone out and grabbed a nice lunch and a beer, but all the restaurants are closed. So that was kind of a bummer. Yeah, but, for sure. No, it, it is a great feeling. Uh, it's also sad to to see an animal that's uh, that's injured and wondering what its future is going to be like. But to to know you've gone out there and you've taken you've helped one of these majestic creatures, it's just it's an awesome feeling. Yeah, absolutely, we're all excited about it. Paul, can I ask you a question? I mean, like, were you able to were you able to look at this were you able to look this whale in the eye, like, um, and get a I mean, I, I realize it's a whale, but uh, and you're you're describing it as as distressed and anxious and confused and um, scared. Uh, 
so you're 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 obviously reading its body language but i'm just curious you know uh for you and the other rescuers out there uh it's just such an uncommon experience for humans in in america to get that kind of encounter even though the circumstances are, are rough like was was there a connection there, man? With the, did you look it in the oh. eye and like, what's it like? Uh, well, so when we went out there Monday, um, we didn't get too close. I mean, we're trying to maintain a safe distance and just survey. But in in doing the the underwater video to try and determine the, the entanglement and then to come up with a game plan, we did get close at that point to do the video, and we videoed the tail and then you video the whole body to see if there's other places on the body that it's wrapped. And on a GoPro, you have a very small screen. So you basically just look at it to see if the, if it was working and if you got some good footage, then we get back to the office, put it on the computer and you just look at this big, beautiful animal and, and you're looking at its whole body. Yes. You're looking at its eyes at its head and it's just laying there in the water. Um, it's it, yeah th there's a connection there's a connection from the moment you see it uh to the moment that uh, it's cut free and goes on on its way it's you want to hope that it knows you're trying to help and you want to hope that it works with you but you always have to assume that it just it doesn't it doesn't know that and it's going to react naturally if it gets hurt or spooked man it sounds like an extraordinary thing to do and uh what good work by a lot of people around the country, as you said, the volunteer network, the National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, to save these animals. Uh, we all like to make a lively living on the shoreline if we can. Uh, we all love seafood. We know that these industries are important. Um, but the trade-off for the natural environment is real. And uh, it's folks like you that get out there and, and rebalance the interest of uh, the commercial fishing community who we like and the natural creatures of this, of this magnificent creature like this. Uh, it's great. You guys are out there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Paul Amaral. He's the uh, captain and the owner of towboat us Ventura coast guard certified, led the rescue of a North, uh, not a North Atlantic white whale, a humpback whale, uh, earlier this month off the California coast. And, uh, Paul, thanks for t coming on the American Shoreline podcast and sharing this amazing story. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate getting the word out to people uh, about the situations. Paul, uh, where can people learn more about you and your company? Uh, we try to post as much as possible the things we do on our Facebook account, Towboat US Ventura. Instagram, the same thing. You can search Towboat US Ventura. Um, towboatusventura.com, our website. The Boat US uh, website page is a great source of information for, uh, for boating, safety, and the Boat US Foundation, uh, which does many, many things for safety, environmental, uh, wildlife protection. And if I could say as well, marine debris, we don't seem to find whales as much entangled in just marine debris but a lot of small animals, a lot of the dolphins, sea lions, birds, and anything that you can prevent from going into the ocean. And as boaters, if you can pick up anything that you see, 
as far as marine debris it goes a long ways to, to saving wildlife. Great advice, Paul. And uh, are, is there can people donate to the Marine Mammal Stranding Network? I don't. Is that a is that a possible thing our listeners can do to help? I not directly to the NOAA uh, Marine Fisheries Service. I don't think, but if you check locally, if uh, if you contact us, the the volunteer groups that are actually doing the training and providing the the work, uh, a lot of them are. Uh, are nonprofits like the Channel Islands uh, Marine and Wildlife Institute that would love donations to help with uh, the many animals that they rescue. And uh, and those are the people that are, a lot of the people that are volunteering for this type of thing. A lot of others are business owners like myself, and um, we don't necessarily need the, the donations. Um, we appreciate the, the kudos and the thank yous. That goes a long ways for us. But the... The nonprofits, uh, I'm sure, would love some some money. Channel Islands Marine and Wildlife Institute. Check them out online. Make a donation and support these pe- people who do the work of the Lord when it comes to these big old giant magnificent creatures that occupy our near shore waters. Thanks again, Paul Amaral, Captain uh, at Towboat U.S. Ventura. And coming up in our final segment of the American Shoreline podcast this week, we've got some great guests from the Chesapeake Bay region. Karen Mullen is the professional learning, the director of professional learning for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, one of the key nonprofit organizations that works to improve the health of the Chesapeake Bay system. And joining Karen is her colleague, A.J. Metcalf, uh, is the Maryland Media Relations Director for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. They both come uh, come to us today from Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this show, Tyler. Me too, Peter. Uh, this is not our first foray uh, into the Chesapeake Bay system and the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. We did another show back... Yeah. Oh, Peter, was it Doug? Um, forgive me. Doug I'm, Myers. Doug Myers. Doug our, Mar- our buddy, Doug Myers. Friend Doug Myers. Uh, w- I, one of my favorite shows we did, Peter, we learned a ton about the Chesapeake Bay and the water quality issues and the expansion of um, development around the bay system. It's a massive watershed. Great show yeah. to go back and listen to. But today yeah. we're going to get to learn a, more about the organization and how it has adapted to the COVID era, of course, this is an organization that uh, does both science research, but also a ton of outreach. And without the ability to do outdoor education and the things that you would normally do uh, in the COVID era, we have to adapt. So uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has done some pretty nifty stuff, and we're going to learn all about it today. But first, let's get to know our guests. Karen, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about your background. I understand you are from Spotsylvania. We're going to have to touch on that. Uh, but Karen, how, what's your background and how did you come to work with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation? So I um, grew up in Pennsylvania and Erie, Pennsylvania, and then I moved to Spotsylvania, Virginia, where uh, Fredericksburg actually, and taught in Spotsylvania schools. And um, it was there, it was from teaching that I discovered the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and um, in, uh, actually discovered it by getting a job, uh, being a teacher, a field educator for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. For then about five years, I traveled all around the Chesapeake Bay, the um, 
the Piedmont and tidal waters of Virginia. The actual islands of the Chesapeake Bay are, are salt marsh islands. Um, I taught for a while on our floating cl classrooms. Um, we have these boats that we call floating classrooms and we take classrooms full of kids out and uh, teachers out onto uh, the tributaries and the bay itself. On our island programs, we do these immersive three-day experiences. And um, and then I circled back to, I sort of traveled all around the Bay and circled back to Annapolis where I started really uh, diving into the teacher professional development side of what CBF does. Um, but that's my, my story of the discovery of tidal waters in general and the coastal, um, coastal waters of uh, the Chesapeake Bay region really came from seeing it through the eyes of children and um, leading other people on that those journeys of discovery. And that's, I think, what we specialize in and, um, and I'm proud to be a part of that team. I left CBF uh, for about 15 years where I did my own private consulting, really focusing on um, uh, inquiry education and native plants and um, uh, just again a very kind of micro looking at the very close in nature that people live in and um, create their green spaces within communities and I've just come back to CBF just recently so that's been my journey cool uh, Peter I've, I've, I feel like I just got to follow up on that one and ask yeah. Karen uh, what with at the highest and best uh, level. What do children? What what is it? What what is the Chesapeake Bay through the eyes of a young student? What 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 is available to them, and what is so inspiring about the Chesapeake Bay system? Well, there's just so many questions to ask, and um, I think that's it. When you actually uh, get out into the field, when you have you know uh, mud in between your toes and in between your fingers, when you're actually in there and you're and you're looking at what a periwinkle is doing um, on some spartina, like or you're um, uh, uh, looking at how an oyster feeds and um, uh, and and what else is crawling around on an oyster shell, like there's just so much in that interconnectedness and uh, and that raw firsthand experience. Um, and then once you get a taste of it, then, um, so say you get a taste of, of a salt marsh, then you go to a freshwater marsh or even a freshwater forest system, and you begin to see how systems are interconnected and, um, and that these processes, whether they're, they're erosion or decomposition or, um, or pollination, that, that there's, there's these systems and processes that have developed over the eons that you can be a participant in, and so that's um, that's what's that's what's powerful about um, taking people out into the field, particularly a, a field like the Chesapeake Bay. And AJ, tell us about yourself and a little bit about how you got involved in uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation as the director of media relations for the state of Maryland. Yeah, yeah. So. I came to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation after eight years as a local news reporter in Maryland. So I started off working for um, Patch.com, the hyper-local news network, um, back when, when Patch had more reporters on the ground. And I ran uh, websites in Howard County, Maryland, which if, if you're familiar with Howard County, you may know, have heard of Ellicott City which is actually where I lived at the time. And it, it's it's been in the news in the past 
two, three years because of uh, very dramatic floods um, that caused deaths and, and destruction in the Main Street area. And after that, I, I went to Montgomery County, which is Maryland's most populous county, and I started a local news website there with uh, the founder of Bethesda Magazine, and it was called Bethesda, it's called Bethesda Beat, and it's actually grown significantly since I left it um, as well. But we basically covered politics and and restaurants and business and and basically anything a local newspaper would cover um, in Montgomery County. And from there, I was looking for something different, and I, I saw a job opening at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation to do media relations for them in Maryland. And I had always liked the organization, and I just have a passion for water. I grew up in Rhode Island, went to school in Boston. I've always been close to rivers and the ocean. And the the opportunity to work um, for the, the foundation was one that I just couldn't pass up. And, and it's been an absolute pleasure working it with with this organization, with these people, with the scientists, the teachers, the educators, and the communications professionals that we have. I mean, it's, it's a premier regional environmental organization, and it, it's just a great place to work. Um, so it's, it's been an exciting path to get here, but it's, it's been even more exciting while I've been here. That's uh, it, it is a it is a premier organization, and I think so important uh, along the American shoreline. Uh, nonprofit organizations that raise public awareness, educate the public, take an active role in understanding these complex estuaries, the restoration efforts, what's going good, what's going bad. The Chesapeake Bay report card for the bay is a big deal, um, but it, media relations is so important in organization because it's all about reaching the public. That's the purpose. Uh, Jay, tell me about the public's understanding and appreciation of Chesapeake Bay. Are they, is it, how, how is the community, uh, how would you rate the community in its appreciation of, of this importance of the space system? Yeah, I think there's a lot of differences in knowledge among the population around the Chesapeake Bay. It starts at the basic level where people are familiar with maybe they went on a boat, maybe they went on an education trip when they were younger going to school, and they, they experienced the bay one a couple times, um, and they learn the basics. They know blue crabs live there. They, they know about rockfish, which most people call striped bass, um, and, and they know about those, those premier species of the bay, um, also oysters, and they've eaten them. Uh, and then above that, you get you get people with more knowledge who understand the, the marsh systems, that that how runoff affects the bay, and the the, the factors that humans play in the bay's health. Uh, and then even at at the higher levels, you you get the people that understand the the, the bay grasses and and their necessity in the water and and kind of how the ecosystem, how all the different parts of the ecosystem come together. So uh, I think it's it's a different, it's, you try to reach all those kind of audiences um, when you're getting your information out, because we work at these very high levels where we're litigating complex cases that we need to explain to the public, but also we're teaching people how to grow oysters on their dock or, or how to plant a rain garden in their yard, which is the more basic, basic level. So, so it's definitely, it's just, it, it reaches a lot of people, but we want to try to bring as many people as we can to, to understand the complexities and the basics. And then INCUP uh, steps the COVID uh, epidemic, and we have to imagine that the game changes and the ability to communicate uh, digitally and virtually becomes even more important. So 
AJ, why don't you start and explain how the organization has adapted here and is adapting, I'm sure, still in the COVID era, and then maybe tee up uh, Karen and 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 uh, so we can shift over and learn more about this education program that I know is uh, working so well right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one challenge from the very beginning just to be able to communicate uh, environmental news is is that news across the country, especially local news, has been contracting. There's less and less reporters covering this. So when you have a pandemic like coronavirus hit, you know what's going to get the headlines. It's going to be constant coronavirus coverage, and absolutely it should be. And we understood that from the very beginning, that it's going to be much harder to to reach audiences, to reach new folks, and, and to communicate what's happening in the local environment um, during this pandemic, because there's just not going to be as much ink or, or on the web digital text um, about environmental news. So we had to transition pretty quickly and think about content creation and how we can create something that will have a lasting impact after this is over, and also be able to be valuable to people during the pandemic. And that's kind of how we arrived at this digital content initiative, which is we've called it Learn Outside, Learn at Home for the student initiative, which is basically taking our education program, which since 1967, when this, when CBF was founded, we've, we've had the motto, which is Learn Outside. It's very, very important for us to get students outside experiencing the system, like Karen said, mud between their toes, picking up critters, uh, feeling the water. And we wanted to bring those experiences that we normally give kids and, and figure out a digital way to do it with our educators. And I think Karen can explain it better than I can, but that's kind of how we arrived where we are and, and this new content initiative. And, and she'll talk about the, the education experience. Yeah, go ahead, Karen. Help us understand that a little bit uh, from your perspective. Yeah, I think that was a, a perfect description, what AJ said. and. What's interesting to me, too, is I think we all remember like those it, it, it felt much longer than a week, but it was essentially a week between like, OK, things are going to be slightly different to OK, everything is different and no one, everyone's staying at home. And it was like this very dramatic. So in the beginning, we were like, oh, we'll just um, we'll just film the educators doing their normal thing and. And by the time we actually had to implement it, um, it was like, nope, all the educators are sitting at home. And so they've got to be in their front porch or in their backyard and still doing what they're doing. So none of the none of the toys or um, gear or any of the things that we're so used to using in the field from our boats to our canoes to our seine nets. Um, but how do we still talk about the things that we're so passionate about and how do we um, bring it home? And I think it was actually really powerful for us as educators to think about, well, how would we talk about um, the Chesapeake Bay and not be able to be on the Chesapeake Bay? And um, it, it's it's forced us to be really creative and it's forced us to um, create some things in, in partnership with our, our communication um, members to, to bring education, bring that field spirit to home to say, ask them to, how do you identify, um, how do you talk about the birds and the, and the plants you can see from um, your front door? And, and how are those things connected to the Chesapeake Bay? So 
I think it's really forced us to look at our, our central message and actually um, uh, continue to challenge us with our creativity of how to, how to make this real to all the people who are so important to us. Well, I don't know if this is giving away trade secrets, but I would imagine that environmental advocacy and coastal advocacy organizations around the country are struggling with this very problem. Uh, it sounds like you've come up with some ideas. Uh, can you uh, share with our audience a little bit about how do you uh, crack the nut here? How do you how do you engage the public, connect them to the bay? when they're sitting, as you said, on their front porch or their back porch. Um, what have you come up with? What's working, do you think? So I think the first thing we did was really just looked at um, some core things that we teach. Like we have several partners that we have worked with, um, both some amazing teachers that uh, – we look forward to working with every single year and some some of, we call them our teacher environmental literacy leaders too, that really like help us show how our field connects with the classroom, right? And um, and then we have a lot of partners and um, the other the other nonprofit and government agencies that are working to uh, similar work that we're doing and school administrators as well. So there are certain messages that are um, universal that we talk about, you know, watersheds, water quality, um, the, the critters um, that that we're talking about, habitat, right? So, so we have like those four basic um, uh, messages that we're like, all right, so what can we talk about with those things, and um, and you know, what are our best field trip experiences when when we're when we're looking at those big, big uh, issues that we're always talking about, watershed, water quality, habitat, and and all the different critters of the bay. So these are the things that teachers are teaching about. These are the things that um, students are interested in. And these are the things that our educators are experts at, at, at communicating. And essentially, we just assigned a, a, all of those topics to everybody sitting in their backyard and said, all right, Pretend that a group of seventh graders just showed up. What are you going to talk about, right? Like, and all you got is yourself and a maybe a bucket of water, right? Like, so make it work, you know. Is it Facebook Live? Is it can they? Is it a Zoom call? Can students interact with the uh, with the teachers that you have aligned with? So um, that's definitely phase two, um, and it's been really fun. Um, to, so phase one was we were just like, okay, just just pretend like the the seventh graders are there, right? And so, you know, all of this stuff has been kind of like um, a, a triage-ish. Like, we're like, oh, we're all trapped at home and all the teachers are like, oh, now I've got to teach online. And so we're like, how about this? So, and that's that's how we've gotten to where we are. And it's been um, really successful. One of the, one of my favorite things is uh, we had a, um, one of our, um, uh, or one of my favorite, stories about the reactions from teachers is we had one of our educators do a freshwater stream um, health one, you know, assessing the freshwater stream. And she had her students watch it and then say, now, for extra credit, those of you who live walking distance to a stream, videotape yourself doing the same thing and send it to me, right? And is it, what a fantastic Love thing to, to inspire that, to say, here, you're... You, take this opportunity to watch somebody model 
how to assess stream health and you go out and and with the same thing nothing but your your shoes and your eyes and your hands try to do the same thing you know and and peter just to answer your question what we're doing is we're having the educators record themselves mostly on their iphones and then we're editing these videos together and pairing them with written investigations or, or worksheets basically that students can complete after watching the videos and the, wow. the investigations are really designed to, to have the kids go outside and find a stream near them or find some woods near them or, or find where, where runoff goes in their neighborhood and figure out if they could improve it or if they can identify the trees or the creatures in the stream or where erosion is happening. So, so that's kind of the whole learn outside, learn at home video series, which is these educators used to teach these these um, subjects live in front of the students. But since we can't do that right now because schools are closed and we can't have students coming in groups to CBF and, and to our sites, we're creating these as videos and pairing them with these written investigations that they can use. I love that, uh, you know, for, for a long time, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has had the uh, notion of learn outside being part of it. But of course, the interpretation there was always get out on the bay and like be outside on the bay. And when it's learn outside, learn at home, the implication, of course, this is like a COVID uh, requirement. But the, the implication now is that the your home is basically the bay because uh, you're connected to the bay system through the physics uh, and, you know, the environmental reasons. It's all part of the same interconnected system. And so it really, uh, I it almost helps draw that connection, wouldn't you say, Peter? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. Uh, AJ, what do, you, uh, what do you think? And Karen, what do you think? I mean, it does embed these people into the understanding of the Chesapeake Bay, even though they're not next to the water or in the water. That's kind of one of the main messages of the uh, Chesapeake Bay Foundation is this whole watershed thinking that you guys do. Yeah, absolutely. And the one of the feedback we've been getting is the fact that there's this, these investigations that are driving those students to that same type of inquiry that you're right, we typically try to do on a boat or on the bay or in canoes um, to drive that same type of look outside or just look at your home and think about its connection to the bay and and uh, and and think of actions that you can you can take to uh, further improve your your connection to the bay. Um, so those investigations, um, have been critical for that. But another part too, is we have this weekly nature journaling activity. Uh, it's a blog, but there's also activities associated with it too. And that's been getting some great feedback because the nature journaling is a encouraging, again, like those investigations to step away from the computer. So you have the online experience, right? But to step away from the computer and to, um, ask questions, be reflective, and think about where you are. And that where you are, where all of us are right now, is at our home and um, and, and, and with that connection, our home is also inside the watershed. I was just thinking about how uh, powerful it is to have the modern technology of being able to do 
uh, homeschooling so well. I mean, we're able to bring pipe teachers in, uh, stream the stream as you as as you guys did. Uh, but I also think it's interesting because so much of the uh, at home learning that I'm sure is taking place around the American shoreline is, uh, you know, lesson work where, hey, it's it's calculus, too. And you got to get from unit 14.2 to 14.3 today or else you're behind. And the nice thing about this, and you use this term inquiry-based learning, and I'd like you, Karen, to, to explain to me what that is. Uh, but I imagine it's the process of uh, <laughs> almost self-curiosity self, uh, self and, and wanting to explore yourself. And ask questions yourself and then find the answers yourself. And uh, I think that must be just so much fun for for locked in kids who are uh, sitting in front of their computers. And what a breath of fresh air this must be. It's not a field trip in the old school sense. But, uh, man, to, to be able to go out and, and free, free one's mind like uh, you are suggesting, I think is really cool. Karen, tell us about inquiry-based learning. Yeah, um... That's a, a great connection, and you're right. Um, with all of these challenges, just like any uh, group of challenges you're facing, there's also opportunity for um, uh, expansion and and uh, and looking for new opportunities. And this is this is one, right? So the idea behind inquiry-based education is that it's an approach to learning that is is centered on the student and the student's role and the student's voice and the student's questions, right? So traditional inquiry is the you know teacher asking a question or leading leading um, that that journey and and what what inquiry based is really really an approach where the student asks the question that leads to another question in a and during a field trip, this is pretty easy because it's fascinating. And, and usually these students are in brand new spaces. So the challenge then is how do you take a space that's extremely familiar, like their city block they live on, right? And and create an atmosphere of inquiry around that. Um, and that that's definitely a challenge. And that's also definitely an opportunity um, that this um, the, the COVID-19 world is presenting us, right? Um, but, but you're right for a very long time and watershed education, we've been trying to tell people that where they are is the watershed. Right. And so right now, here's our time to, to talk about that. In the, the Chesapeake Bay world, we have a, uh, in the Chesapeake Bay education world, we have a phrase called meaningful watershed education experience. And one of the things we've been talking about is how this, meaningful watershed education experience is something where the kids are and people in general have connections to their their watershed have these field-based connections to their their watershed that are meaningful to them that they see their connection to this larger ecosystem that they're a part of and then they um, think of actions of how they can improve that connection improve the health of their watershed and this is a very individualized way of thinking of that. You know, this watershed approach has got to be a challenge uh, for listeners around the country. You know, Google up a map of the Chesapeake Bay watershed 
64,000 square miles, 150 river systems in this watershed. Uh, it covers six states. It starts in New York, crosses all the way north to south across Pennsylvania, includes big chunks of Virginia, a smidge of West Virginia and Maryland. I mean, uh, AJ, as a challenge in the immediate world, I've got to think that getting people to understand up in New York that what they do and how they act affects the, this vital American Bay system, the Chesapeake Bay, has got to be a challenge given the size of this thing. Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge just to relate the size. And I mean, I often say it goes from Cooperstown, New York, all the way down to Norfolk, Virginia, at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, where it meets the Atlantic Ocean. And to just think about that size is, is a little bit overwhelming. But it's also, I think the bigger challenge is to get everyone in the system to agree on what's best to do and how to do it. You know, there's a lot of finger pointing. Uh, throughout the watershed about who's responsible for the pollution, who should pay to clean it up, and how do we get there in the fastest and best way. And so I, I think while it's it's challenging to communicate uh, the size, the scope, and, and everything that's involved, it's even more of a challenge to communicate um, the science and, and, and kind of get past the divisiveness to work together. And I, I think that's a that's a bigger challenge and one that CBF is really dedicated to, to trying to meet. A big challenge, but the, the pathway to that has got to begin, I think, with education, which gives people an understanding of the issue, the problem. What is the water quality? Why does, where does this runoff come from? What is contributing to algal blooms? What is diminishing the oyster population or the striped bass and all of that. But education, understanding, uh, ultimately, I think the theory is, is that educated uh, folks become advocates and take action and maybe brings people together. Uh, do you find, um, AJ, in the work or and Karen, do you find that as people gain an understanding of the issues, that it results in a more willingness to, to participate in finding the solution. Oh, absolutely, Peter. I mean, it's education is the cornerstone of our work. It, it's the it's the base. Um, if people don't understand how algae blooms cause loss of dissolved oxygen in the water, if they don't understand that the water that runs off the Appalachian Mountains comes down and, and ends up in the Chesapeake Bay, then how can they improve those systems? Uh, or why would they care to improve those systems? So it's, it's so, so helpful when people have accurate information about the latest science, when they understand uh, concepts related to the bay and ecosystems and food webs and, and nutrient pollution and, and the sources of runoff and things like that. Because if you don't understand that, you, then you see the, the things like the rain tax or fees like related to cleaning up the environment. And you just think that it's just a burden on you rather than something that will improve the overall area around you. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's key. And I'm sure Karen can elaborate. Yes. I think it's it, incredibly important to understand. And of course um, that becomes so much of the, the reason for the education department to be what the education department is, but Beyond understanding, there's also this critical piece of personal connection that, um, and, and a lot of times that comes from something like like pride or um, it, uh, 
just connection and, and importance of their space and their world. And if I want to have, you know, um, it, like cleaner air, or I want to be able to see birds, or I want, and, and like, I just want um, a space that I can be proud of, you know, that becomes a really critical piece too. Um, that uh, with with environmental action is seeing that link between uh, personal well-being and um, and uh, just how you want to live your life to a healthy functioning ecosystem. Mm. That this ecosystem is not somehow separate from your own well-being. That actually that there's a, a, a strong connection between both. And- it's 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 truthful what you're saying and um what i think is kind of incredible uh that we're getting to witness around the world right now is the planet earth in a much quieter posture than it has ever been probably in the last hundred years you know a lot of planes are on the ground a lot of cars are in garages and parked uh we're active but the drop-off in human activity um is significant and all around the world you see stories about people are seeing the Himalaya mountains for the first time uh, or other mountain ranges in in Italy or in other places the Venice canals are clear the bay systems are are getting a little breathing space the fishing pressure is off quite a bit um, you know it, it it I'll tell you what it does for me is it drives home that connection you're talking about Karen which is what we do as human beings really, really does have a, a significant uh, impact on the natural world around us. And uh, I think we're all getting to see what our planet would be like if we were just a little more light-footed. Uh, are you kind of feeling that same way about the Chesapeake? It's, get, it's got, I think, every, all the natural systems are getting a little bit of a break right now. Well, it's definitely... All we have is anecdotal evidence, but there's definitely um, the question of, are we simply spending more time right now observing, and so therefore we're seeing more, or are we actually seeing more, right? And right. Um, and I don't know which is right, but I think both are good, right? So whether it's simply that we're spending a little bit more time uh, maybe taking a longer dog walk and seeing more songbirds, right? Or we're just um, spending a little m- more quiet time standing by the creek and, and looking and observing and th- seeing some different things. But yeah, there's, um, uh, I know we are all anxious to um, get back out there and, um, and, and start doing more things, but there's also like this incredible opportunity that we've had to um, see what happens when we're not making so much noise. Connect. We've had an Absolutely. opportunity yeah. to connect. It's pretty cool. Uh, AJ, closing thoughts from you. Uh, yeah, I mean, on that subject that you were just talking about, I, I think it, it's going to be fascinating to see once we do get data back and we get water quality monitoring data and and we see some of the effects on, on the rivers and, and, and streams. And if we can tell if, if this reduction in, in human travel activity is going to make a, a meaningful or, or temporary impact. I mean, obviously we, we hate to see that the Bay could improve because of this pandemic. I mean, we wish 
like everyone else, that the coronavirus never happened and we didn't have to deal with this. But it, it will be a fascinating experiment, basically, that, that scientists can look back and, and see, well, if we can reduce carbon dioxide emissions from these, these sources of travel and other things that have been reduced during this time, here's what the payoff could be. Um, and they can say it more authoritatively because people will have seen it and there will be evidence of it. And um, so it, it'll be fascinating. I hope you guys, if you find that out, when you get the data through the scientific community there at the foundation and otherwise, man, I would love to uh, do a, a show, a follow-up on that topic and see if that is a documentable uh, reality that the, the water quality got, got improved. Um, but ladies and gentlemen from Annapolis, Maryland, we've been talking to Karen Mullen, who is the Director of Professional Learning at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and her colleague, AJ Metcalf, who is the Media uh, Relations Director for the State of Maryland in the foundation. Uh, you guys, thanks for catching us up on one of the premier estuary, estuaries on the American shoreline and just a great part of the world. Uh, thank you so much for being on the American Shoreline podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And of course, we also want to thank Captain Paul Amaral of Towboat U.S. Ventura and our good friends Steve and Annie Mercer, the co-hosts of the soon-to-be-launched Carolina Coast podcast. Thank you all for being on the show this week. Stay tuned to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for lots of great shows coming up this week on ASPN. Beaches and sand.